Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. My name is Sarah Backer, and I'm your host. Today, we are releasing an episode from our Ground Truth series with our partners at Beverage and Diamond, focused on environmental justice. Beverage and Diamond associate Hillary Jacobs will meet with Ebony Griffin of Earth Justice. Before they begin, allow me to set the stage. Environmental justice is a concept at the crossroads of environmental protection and social justice, dating back to the civil rights movement. It is defined by the Environmental Protection Agency as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. Interest and urgency in advancing environmental justice, or EJ, has gained new momentum in recent years. The Biden-Harris administration has placed an unprecedented federal focus on environmental justice using a whole-of-government approach, including issuing executive orders demanding accountability and action from a broad list of federal agencies. In addition, a growing list of states continue to develop, implement, and enforce EJ-focused legislation, accelerated by the intensity at the federal level. In today's episode of Ground Truth, We will have a focused conversation about EJ and community engagement. We will also discuss how regulators and companies can meaningfully engage with the communities they impact to address EJ concerns. Thank you, Sarah. I'm Hilary Jacobs, an attorney at Beverage and Diamond. I'm very excited to be here today with our guests to discuss this topic. Before we dive in, I'll share a little bit more about our wonderful guest. Ebony Griffin Garrier is Senior Legislative Counsel with Earth Justice's Policy and Legislation Team. Ebony is an environmental justice attorney focused on eradicating environmental health disparities in Black and Brown communities. Originally from a low-income community in North Alabama, Ebony moved to Philadelphia in 2017 to join the Public Interest Law Center as its environmental justice attorney. At Earth Justice, she currently focuses on cumulative impacts. Ebony has extensive experience in the field of environmental law. In law school, she worked as a summer law clerk for the White House Council on Environmental Quality and also spent five months clerking for the Office of Enforcement and Compliance Assurance at the EPA. Ebony also spent several years working as an environmental and safety regulatory associate in Washington, D.C. Ebony is a graduate of Howard University Law School and received her Bachelor of Arts degree in Spanish from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Ebony, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. We're delighted to have you. So to get started, could you please tell us a little bit about your organization and your work there? It would be really great for our listeners to hear an example or two about successful community collaboration that you've achieved through your organization. So Earth Justice is the largest environmental legal advocacy organization in the nation. Every day, its attorneys use the power of the law to protect people's health, preserve magnificent places and wildlife, and advance clean energy. We also work with Congress, the White House, and federal agencies on strengthening environmental laws to fight climate change and advance environmental justice. My work specifically is focused on advancing cumulative impacts. 
Cumulative impacts refers to the total body burden from chemical and non-chemical stressors and their interactions with one another. So cumulative impacts examines how these stressors impact the health, well-being, and quality of life of an individual, a community, or a population at any given point in time or over a period of time. This means that cumulative impacts includes both contemporary exposures in various environments where individuals spend time and also past exposures that have lingering effects. An example of this would be a community experiencing increased exposures to lung irritants. These result in increased asthma rates and lead to increased acceptability to inhalants in general. Oftentimes, these communities exist near multiple sources of pollution and multiple types of pollution. Um, one good example that always comes up is Cancer Alley. Cancer Alley serves as an industrial hub with nearly 150 oil refineries, plastic plants, and chemical facilities. It's in Louisiana. Cumulative impacts provide context for characterizing the potential state of vulnerability or resilience of the community or their ability to withstand or recover from additional exposures under consideration. Now, people's eyes usually glaze over when I say cumulative impacts, but ultimately the goal of advancing cumulative impacts is eliminating environmental health disparities to achieve environmental equity. In this context, my work involves engaging with communities experiencing environmental injustice or cumulative impacts, identifying their specific concerns, and analyzing them to find a legislative or regulatory solution, then helping our partners advance those solutions in Congress and the administration, and sometimes at the state and the local levels as well. That's great. Thank you so much for that background. And our eyes here at BND and on Ground Truth definitely don't glaze over when you say cumulative impact. So <laughs> it's really interesting and helpful to hear the background and how you do this work at Earth Justice. Just for, again, for a reader's benefit, and I think your bio shared a little bit of this, but I would love to hear it from you directly. Could you share a little bit about the background of how you came to do this great work? I think it's it's really interesting to hear how people get to be where they are, and I personally would love to hear it. Yeah, so, oh, that's such a, a long and windy story. I'll give you the short version. I actually went to undergrad because I wanted to be a medical doctor. I wanted to open a clinic for low-income women. And somewhere around organic chemistry two and physics two, I woke up and decided maybe not med school. And so I ended up taking a philosophy course that focused on public health implications and the law. And, you know, there was a lot of bioethical issues in there, but also environmental issues came up. And that was the first time that I really thought about going to law school. So I went to law school thinking that I wanted to be a healthcare attorney um, until I took an environmental law class. And that's when I realized that I'd grown up my entire life living in an environmental justice community. And then everything just kind of clicked for me at that point. So I made it my mission from that point to go into the field of environmental law, specifically environmental justice, to advance environmental protections for communities like mine, like the one that I grew up in. And so I fell into lobbying and policy work after being consistently frustrated that our environmental laws aren't truly people focused. I worked with a community group in Philadelphia, I want to say about 2018, and the community group was fighting the siting of a facility in their neighborhood that would increase pollution, particularly ozone and particulate matter. The community already had significantly elevated childhood asthma rates. There was lots of elevated instances of congestive heart failure and just heart disease in general, lots of hospitalizations, a lack of green space, just like a whole host of issues already happening in that community. And so we went through all of the legal channels available to them. You know, we attended hearings at the Department of Licenses and Inspections. They 
provided public comment on like the siting plans, all of the things that the law basically says that they should do if there's something happening in their neighborhood that they don't want to happen. And ultimately, the company that was planning to site the facility wasn't really responsive to any community concerns. They weren't really interested in engaging with the community. And, you know, we ultimately, the law just wasn't on our side. And we were all so incredibly frustrated and felt very defeated. But we just shifted the focus and the conversation to what we could do to prevent similar issues from happening in the future. And then we began working with other partners in the city to advance a cumulative impacts bill through Philadelphia City Council. And that's sort of how I ended up working with Earth Justice. And never in my all my years on Earth and as a lawyer did I think that I would end up being a lobbyist. But honestly, it's been some of the most fulfilling work because I feel, you know, the opportunity to engage directly with impacted communities and hear the concerns that they have and really listen to the solutions that they've come up with as a group because they are so incredibly creative and resilient and educated about these issues and, you know, how the impacts that these issues are having on their own bodies. It's been really inspiring doing this work. So I'm very thankful to be able to do it. That's awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that that story. And it it really resonates with me in a number of ways. But the one sort of silly way that I'll share quickly is I went to undergrad wanting to be a doctor and took summer physics and was like, yeah, I don't want this <laughs> badly. So I totally understand that. Yes. So thanks so much for that. The Biden administration has devoted unprecedented federal resources to addressing environmental justice. For example, they've implemented requirements that those applying to receive federal funding for many different types of projects must involve the community in project planning. So I'm wondering if in your role you've experienced any positive impacts from this or other new requirements and elements of the federal government's increased focus on environmental justice that we've really seen over the last couple of years. So I'm not limiting this question just to federal funding, but to, you know, any impacts from the increased federal focus that we've been seeing. For a really, really, really long time, community concerns have been brushed aside in the name of expediency and profit. And it's long past time that the federal government recognizes that we at Earth Justice and our partners in the environmental justice movement know to be true. Communities matter. And, you know, full stop, communities matter. By requiring project sponsors to increase their outreach and partnership with local communities impacted by their projects, the Biden administration is demonstrating that it is listening to the concerns of these communities long ignored and using policy to incentivize good practices and engagement. We also know that projects that engage communities upfront from the beginning and projects that adequately address their concerns result in better, more resilient projects that are less likely to face litigation on the tail end. I can think of one example of how this didn't quite work out. So this was, of course, before you know the announcement of the federal funding, but it's really illustrative of why this increased focus on communities and requiring this engagement is incredibly important. So I worked with the community for a number of years, also in Philadelphia. I still work with them in different contexts that we'll probably talk about later. But this community is heavily prone to flooding. And, you know, there's like a number of significant issues. There's a couple of Superfund sites. There's one section of the community that the homes are just sinking. They're literally just sinking underground, crumbling, falling apart. And they've had a lot of flooding over the years, but there's also a huge redevelopment project that's happening. And the residents had been advocating with the relevant federal agencies for quite some time just to make sure 
that the agencies understood the specific com community concerns, because while not entirely unique, you know, with the flooding in Philadelphia, generally, it's a very sort of an anomalous um, community situation. And they've done their own independent research and studies and gotten partners with some of the universities in the area and done all of this modeling to show that the plans that the government, and I'm, I'm being intentionally vague, I don't want to out anyone, but the plans basically were going to be disastrous for the community and make the flooding significantly worse. But of course, they didn't listen and moved ahead with some of these plans and, you know, ultimately we were able to really get some good comment on the table and have them walk back some of the plans for the cut and fill that they proposed to do. But I just feel like that's such a good example of why community industry partnerships are so incredibly important. Because if you think of the amount of time and effort and money that could have been saved had the industry just approached the situation or the project as a partnership from the beginning, you know, it's just really illustrative of why it's so important to adequately and intentionally engage community groups when you're looking to, you know, start new projects. Absolutely. And that's a really great example and, and kind of leads us really well into our next set of questions. I kind of want to flip this example on its head and ask, do you have any other specific examples of successful industry community collaboration that our listeners can learn from. So the opposite of what happened in this Philadelphia situation you just described. Yeah, well, I have one that I'm working on right now, um, and it's a really unique situation. So and I'd like to use it as an example because the engagement or sort of the interaction did not start off pleasant, right? It wasn't the sort of situation where the industry knew exactly what they were doing and they came in and they engaged the community appropriately. And then everyone sort of, you know, skipped off into the sunset holding hands. That's not what happened. What happened was <laughs> they came into the community like industry has historically done and just kind of made their plans known without really including the community in those plans or the design of those plans at all. And it wasn't incredibly well received. As a matter of fact, they were basically fought at every turn because community groups feel incredibly disrespected when a new neighbor, which is essentially what industry is when they're coming in to complete a new project, just kind of comes in and doesn't introduce themselves, right? Just imagine you have a huge new neighbor on your block and you live on a very friendly block and everyone knows everyone and this neighbor is just kind of like off doing their own thing and not really blending themselves into the neighborhood fabric of the neighborhood. It, it doesn't really go over well. But ultimately, after, you know, having really thoughtful conversations and sort of convening lots and lots and lots of conversations between our clients and the industry group and, you know, just really explaining where the various perspectives were, we were able to get to a point of a mutual respect, which is ultimately what this is all about, right? A mutual respect and a mutual understanding. And that's not to say that where we are now is perfect and that there isn't a ways to go until we get to the end result. But I believe that there definitely can be a lesson learned from the way that this industry group sort of came in, not on the greatest terms, but was able to mend those relationships through intentional and thoughtful engagement with community leaders. I really think there's really good takeaways there. I totally agree. And I think that's really a great example for our listeners to learn about a time when they didn't know everything, they didn't exactly 
know what they were doing going into it, but were able to somewhat turn it around. I think that's really helpful and inspiring for a lot of our listeners. So just as my last question, I think you answered a little bit of this just now with this great example, but I have one last question. A lot of our listeners are in-house practitioners interested in advancing environmental justice through their everyday work. Some might find themselves in situations similar to the one you just described. So my question for you is what can regulators and companies do to build trust and meaningfully work with communities and address concerns? Are there any universal best practices that transcend context? And again, I think some of what you just shared with us does speak to this question, but just asking you to build on it just a little bit. Oh, I think this is such a great question, and I'm so glad you asked. I think it's so important that we get to a point where we all collectively understand that there is a need to protect the environment and public health, and there is a need for advancement and industrialization, and we have to figure out a way to do those things together in a way that's protective of all of the things that we need to be protective of, right? And I think that I've had so many experiences with industry and developers alike who are hesitant to reach out to the community for various reasons. But probably the most common reasons I've heard is that there's a fear that the community will have astronomical monetary demands or that there's nothing that the developer can do to even garner community support for the project. But in my experience, that's far from the truth. Community groups often feel that industry does not value their lived experiences the same way they do education and job title and, you know, status and stuff like that. And the key to fostering meaningful community engagement is to understand that lived experience is just as, if not more important than learned experience. And approaching the community as a whole in a way that demonstrates a desire to collaborate rather than inform is a good strategy. Understanding that community-based nonprofits and grassroots organizations often have thoughtful proposals and solutions for their specific community concerns is another good strategy. It's also really, really important to meet people where they are. And people often get confused when I say this, but what I mean by that is understanding that the dynamics of each community will be different and approaching each potential community engagement by first educating yourself on those dynamics, learning who the trusted community leaders are, what cultures are present, what languages are spoken, and then implementing that knowledge into your approach to engaging that community. I have a really good example for this. Recently, I supported a really large community partner meeting with some government officials in Washington, D.C. And one member mentioned that his community in Ohio had been experiencing contamination from algal blooms for a really long time. And this was resulting in frequent boil water advisories and people just could not use their water in their homes. The problem was most of the impacted community did not speak English, but of course, all of these advisories were printed only in English. And so the lesson here is had the government done its due diligence and learned the intricacies of that impacted community, they would have saved so many households from unnecessary exposure to toxins, but they would have also streamlined their own process and really just developed more trust within that community. Because I think what we often forget as industry, and not that I'm in industry, but what we often forget is that there is a fractured trust between community groups and industry groups and government groups. And it's not for not, right? You know, that fractured trust didn't come out of nowhere. It's not made up. It's based on real lived experiences and real histories. 
And because of that, it's not up to the community to, you know, put their best foot forward and rebuild that trust. It's up to the people who cause the harm. And in most cases, that's going to be the industry and that's going to be the government. And I think once we shift that perspective and stop approaching these situations as, oh, it's going to be a mess and we're never going to be able to make anybody happy and they're not going to want anything that we want to do, really approaching it from a, okay, we know that you've been harmed. We know that this situation is not ideal. What can we do together? How can we partner together to make this something that we can all be happy with? And I think that's really what the approach is to this. That's great. I think that's going to be really helpful for our listeners. Thank you so much for sharing those insightful thoughts. We're about out of time, but I want to thank you, Ebony, so much for joining us today. This has been just really insightful and awesome conversation. And we're just so grateful that you agreed to join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.